here we are. Um, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> when uh, when we look at Second um, Chronicles fifteen is where we're going to start. Um, we're also going to be in Second Chronicles eighteen and twenty, both, um, and we're going to pop over to First Kings eighteen for just a couple of minutes. So if uh, if you want to kind of put a finger in there as well, but we're going to start in Second Chronicles fifteen. Most Christians, I would say, are not familiar with the divided kingdom of Israel. You know, we, we'll know Saul, and we'll know David, and we'll know Solomon, because those, those great stories, you know, from Sunday school and, and that. But right after Solomon, it gets really fuzzy, doesn't it? Kind of cloudy and hazy. And we hear names like Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, and Abijah, and Asa, and Jehoshaphat, and Ahab. And we, we kind of just go like, I don't understand what's happening. You know, what order is happening? Who's living at the same time? Wait, there's two kings. There's two kingdoms. You know, this side is sometimes good. This side is always bad. And there's just this tug and pull and a lot of detail that a lot of stuff gets missed. And I want to try to talk about the first, about half of it today, uh, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, not not the whole divided kingdom. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and lay that out. But the, the story of Second Chronicles takes us from... Um, actually, first and second chronicles together, the chronicles of the of the Hebrew people uh, from from the United Kingdom with Saul and David all the way down to the last king of the divided kingdom and the Babylonian captivity. That's a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. Why did they split? So the split happened with Solomon's sons. Rehoboam took over the kingdom. And uh, there was a request from the people. They said, Solomon, your father, ruled over us with, you know, with a whip. And it was really hard to accomplish everything he did. And Rehoboam, and they asked for, you know, just, you know, all the, all the elders of the land were asking, you know, uh, Rehoboam, just go easy on us for a generation or so. And Rehoboam came back and said, my father drove you with whips. I'll drive you with scorpions. And there was a rebellion under his reign that the Lord intentionally brought about. It, he says that straight up. And Jeroboam, his brother, sectioned off about 10 of the tribes and made the northern kingdom. That's what's called Israel from then on forward. And the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is, is called Judah, right? Two and a half tribes down there, about 10 tribes, nine and a half tribes into the north. And so Jeroboam reigns in the north, Rehoboam reigns in the south, and there's parallel kingships through the rest of history, right? Yes, sir. You say Solomon ruled with a whip. Yeah. Was he just a stern taskmaster? Yes. Very religious? So, yes. Both. And so, so... That narrows it down. Right, well, with Solomon, so he starts out with great fervor. He builds the temple and, you know, a fealty to the Lord and all this kind of stuff. And, and as much an extreme person as he was with that in his later life, after his descent, his, um, his capitulation to idolatry and many wives and all sorts of other things and making peace treaties with other lands, he caused a lot of the discord in the country. Um, so what started out as a very wise man ended up a very foolish idolatry. Right. And so Solomon's Solomon's descent is one of the worst. And it really it really takes such promise and extreme accomplishment. And he lives long enough and reigns long enough to see him wipe it all out. Thank you. Sure.
Yes, ma'am. Yep. So some did, yes, right? So that we'll see, like, for instance, um, Samuel's father did. Um, he had two uh, wives. There, there were several others that did, but kings, it was much more the way of it, um, uh, really to ensure that you bring about heirs, right? And, um, and actually, God, through Moses, warns the people in Deuteronomy that when you go into the land and after hundreds of years desire a king, now this is all prophesied ahead of time, he gives instruction to that king not to get too many wives like everyone else because they'll lead his heart astray. Now that happens to Solomon. The man ends up having, what was it, 300 wives? So, I mean, you know, and, and they were all from all these foreign countries and bringing in their foreign gods and compromises are made. And after so many compromises, you don't even recognize who you are anymore. And um, this is one of those, this is one of those things, one of the difficult things of putting anybody on pedestals, for instance, if Solomon died before his time, everyone would have said he's the finest king that we ever had. But he lived long enough to descend into self-focus and idolatry. And that, that really becomes the, the hallmark downfall of his entire reign. And that's, that's an unfortunate thing, but it's also a good lesson to us. You know, was this person so great or did they die before their time? And then it fell away. Right. And that, that kind of, that kind of thing exists throughout all of Israel's history. Um, don't, don't look to the King to save you. Don't look to peace treaties with Egypt to save you. Don't look to any of these things, trust and rely on the Lord. And if he's telling you to do something, walk with him, right? We'll see that instance here today. After Solomon's reign, his descendants for the next couple of generations just wiped out any semblance of following the Lord at all. So Solomon's temple in all of its grandeur went into disrepair, disrepute, and, or disrepute and just ignored. The, the priests weren't doing what they were to do. Nobody else was carrying out what they were supposed to do. And at the beginning of one of the kings of the southern kingdom, Asa. He's, he's one of the descendants of Rehoboam from, you know, from Solomon. We have an instance where the Spirit of God shows up in the middle of this, and it will remind you of the time of the judges. Uh, since you've walked through us with that, this will show up in a way that's familiar. Um, it starts off in 2 Chronicles um, well, 14 is where his reign takes off, but 15 is where we're going to pick up. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. Now, this is a prophet whose name we're not overly familiar with usually in church. Uh, and he went out to meet Asa, Asa is the king, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. Now, Judah and Benjamin is the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is for a couple of generations now. It's been about 100 years since the split. They're not listening to anything. They have horrible kings. We'll talk about them in a second. Here in the southern kingdom... God sends a prophet named Azariah. Uh, the, spirit of the uh, Spirit of God came upon Azariah, came to King Asa and said, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, now tell me if this doesn't sound like the time of the judges. For a long time, Israel is, was without the true God and without a teaching priest or without the law. 
But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, this is the chronicler writing about the times of Asa, in those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces, nation was crushed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you... This is the prophet saying to Asa, Take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Verse 8. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah the son of Oded, he took courage, and he put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that had been taken in the hill country of Ephraim, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule in the house of the Lord. That's Solomon's temple. And he gathered all Judah and everything. They sacrificed to the Lord. They swore north to the Lord. That's the rest of the chapter. There has been not one instance. Now, I'm following chronologically in Israel's history. There has not been one instance expressly stated where the Spirit of the Lord said anything or did anything since the death of David. That's why last week we talked about the Holy Spirit with David, and all of a sudden we're 150, 160 years into the future. No involvement. No prophet expressly stated was sent with the word of the Lord like this. Now, there were prophets that were sent that the Spirit of the Lord was involved with. I'm not saying he wasn't. What I'm saying is that the chronicler and the writer of the book of Kings does not mention it at all does not mention the Spirit of the Lord by name or express that he was specifically and personally involved with these things. And that's a distinction because it's important to realize that when the Spirit of the Lord is talked about, there's something very important being said about him. Here again, what are we starting to learn? One, where is the Spirit of the Lord? With the king or with someone else now? Someone else. With David, it was the king. Right? He fulfilled a really, really unique role. Now, he wasn't the prophet, but he had the Spirit of the Lord. It was just this really unique thing with David and with Saul, by the way, as well. Really, really unique things back in the United Kingdom. Nothing was ever stated about Solomon like that. Nothing at all. And no other king, not Jeroboam, not Rehoboam, not Azariah, not Abijah, uh, Abijah excuse me, and not any of those who came before Asa. And here, by the time we come here, we realize we've crossed into a new territory a new time period with regards of how the Spirit of God is going to work. We will never see the Spirit of God come upon a king again until Jesus. We will only see the Spirit of God working in the prophets. And that's where all of our focus is going to be spent until we come to the book of Matthew. Because all of this focus is going to be laid out in these prophets. Now, if you know your books of the Old Testament, you know that there is no son of Azariah, or there's no son of Oded, prophet named Azariah, who's written one of the prophecies. There's a lot of prophets that are just speaking prophets. They're, they didn't write anything in Scripture. And they come up in the story. They come up for a single message to be brought, usually to a king. Uh, you'll have, for instance, during David's reign, even Nathan, the prophet, came up and challenged. Samuel, the prophet, um, anointed him. Prophets have had this role, but they're not really writing a lot, except Samuel. He actually wrote First and Second Samuel. So, But all of these prophets later, people like Elijah, people like Elisha, they're not writing books of the Bible. They're challenging the kings. And God is sending out his spirit in the spirit of the prophets to tell the leaders what the word of the Lord is. This is a completely marketed difference. David says, 
that as he had the Spirit of the Lord from the time he was anointed to the time of his passing, the word of the Lord never departed his lips. That's his last and final message to everyone is kind of his surprise that that happened to him. After that, no king experiences that, only prophets, which means as far as the Spirit of God is concerned, we've entered a brand new age. The Spirit of God was working with judges, who were the rulers in Israel, and then working with kings, who were the rulers in Israel. And now, after the divided kingdom, God is only working through prophets. Sometimes written, people like Isaiah or Ezekiel, uh, and sometimes just spoken, people like Elijah and Elisha, and here, Azariah. Is this only in Judah? So, most of them are to Judah, but people like Elijah and Elisha are sent to the northern kingdom. So most of them are sent to the southern kingdom because they at least have every once in a while kings that have flashes of we want to follow the Lord, right? Um, we want to rebuild you know, the temple. We want All that kind of stuff happens in the south because in the south is where Jerusalem is. In the north, uh, they, they continue on for about 260 years or so, and then they're carried away by, um, um, by the Assyrians, and they become the Samaritans later on um, because they get all intermixed. So uh, the northern kingdom only really exists for less than 300 years. And uh, they, they have not a single king that's ever described as a good king. And so just a straight history of debauchery and horrificness. Now, you got to remember, they don't have the temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord's in the southern kingdom. That's where Jerusalem is. And in the northern kingdoms, they establish their own place of worship, Mount Gerizim. Remember the woman from Samaria in John chapter 4? You Jews say that the place to worship your Lord is on Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans say it's here, Mount Gerizim. That goes all the way back to this time period, that they they were separated from the temple in the northern kingdom, and so they made their own high places to worship. Now, could the people of the northern uh, Israel go down into Judah? At various times, yes. Most of the time they're at war with one another. Right. So sometimes, yeah. So like Ahab and Jehoshaphat are kings, Ahab, the king in the north and Jehoshaphat, king in the south. They sometimes come together against a common enemy, but other times they're at war with one another. So sometimes yes, sometimes no, Um, which really aids in the downfall of the northern kingdom being separated from the temple of God. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But it also lends to the pride of the southern kingdom. Right? This is something that shows up in the book of Jeremiah, um, where the northern kingdom had been carried away 120 years before, and Judah, the southern kingdoms, were, uh, the southern kingdom was just sitting there going, uh, the way it shows up in Jeremiah is they would just chant the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he's saying, you know, what they were saying is just because we have the temple of the Lord, we will never be overtaken by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 you, you can't depend on that at all. If you're going to be unfaithful, God will destroy not only you, but the temple, even the walls of Jerusalem. And that happened during the book of uh, Jeremiah. That's why he writes the book of Lamentations. He's just weeping on the ruins of the temple and the walls, you know, because the people's faithlessness carried this out. And some who left everything and went down to Egypt to survive. And he was warning them the whole time. You're going to die in Egypt if you go down there. And the God tells Jeremiah to go with them and die with them, which is what happens to him. So it's, it's a horrible history. Everything just unravels. And in the middle of all of this, we have this little string 
in, in the study of the Holy Spirit of God working and bringing about all of these things. It's such a remarkable testament because if you're reading through Second Chronicles, you could pass over it without noticing it for a second. Because if you're not looking for it, you won't see it. And, and here, the Spirit of God makes a huge transition from, from indwelling or filling or coming upon leaders like the judges or the kings to now just the prophets. He's just going to bring the Word of God and take it or leave it. And this is what the prophets will do. They will come forward, and that's, that's the main role of the prophet. It's not to tell about the future. It's to tell the Word of God. Whether it revolves around the future or the present or a situation or not is almost irrelevant. Here, what we're learning about the Spirit of God is that he has a desire to see that the nations don't just carry on their own way. This isn't going to be something that, um, that the people of God or that God is just happy because you exist. There has to be something of fealty towards the Lord. You can't just worship any other God and expect that to be okay. It's not okay. There's detestable idols in the land of Judah and Benjamin. And the, the challenge from the prophet, uh, the prophet Azariah to King Asa, is you need to muster up your courage, do what everyone doesn't want you to do, tear down the idols, the high places, and restore the house of the Lord. That is a very, very difficult call at this time period in history to do. Because it would be similar, just to put it in time frames. Just to put it in time frames, let's imagine that King David has been dead for almost 200 years at this point. Right? I mean, imagine calling people back to fealty for something 200 years ago, 1822. What are you going to be called? You're not with the times. There's been so much development since then. Now, I'm not likening you know, our country with this. I'm just trying to put it how out of touch it would be if, if, and, and, and how long it has been since God has spoken through a prophet for this purpose uh, to carry out something. After that time period, we have to give up our phones. Yeah, okay, so we have really, uh, this is before the Industrial Revolution. This is before all sorts of things, and so... It would be absolutely out of touch. We have no concept of them. That's just on the natural thing. This is on the spiritual thing. We've moved on from that God and that time and the United Kingdom. We have no hope of that whatsoever. We're the good guys. The Northern Kingdom are the bad guys. We don't need to improve. They do. That's the attitude that's in Judah right now. And God says, no, that's not how it works. You don't get to establish your own and say that's good enough compared to the Northern Kingdom. No, you have to worship me. Even if it makes you look like a fool in the face of those that you think need the Lord, you need the Lord. And this is what the Spirit of the Lord comes to the prophet of Azariah to say to the king Asa, you need to take courage and don't let your hands be weak. Destroy the idols, destroy the high places, take back the cities in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the promise that I have given to you. Repair the altar of the Lord and he gathered together everyone. They sacrificed to the Lord. They made an oath to the Lord. You can see at the very end of his reign, you don't see a lot of his reign in the book of Second Chronicles, but at the end of Second Chronicles 15, look at verse 16. Even Ma'akah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. That's, that's an idol, massive one too, by the way. Very popular one. 
Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it in the book, Brook Kidron. Everything's going great, right? But, I always hate those transition points. But the high places were not all taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and golden vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So as far as him personally, everything went well. This is great. Not everything was solved. And so you get this little hint that something's going to be brewing under the surface. Um, And uh, Asa dies in the 36th year of his reign. But his whole reign is structured by following the word of the Lord. And the writer of the Chroniclers is reminding those who would read his work and say, and we don't know who actually wrote the book of Chronicles. Whoever wrote this is reminding the people of the Lord that it is not by great strength. It is not by pride. It is not by any of these things that good rulers rule. It is by submitting themselves to the word of the Lord. Right? And Asa is being used as kind of, you know, version 1.0 of this. Now, not everything was done. There's going to be problems in the future because it wasn't thorough. But as far as for his heart, he followed the Lord all the years of his reign. That's a lot to say. He reigned almost as long as David, 35 years, 36 years. Um, Pretty remarkable stuff. Um, Let's pop over to 1 Kings 18 and see what's happening in the northern kingdom. After Asa dies, his son Jehoshaphat comes to the throne. We're going to talk about him a bit. But first, we got to pop up to the northern kingdom to see what's going on. Because towards the end of that reign, there was another king that was over the northern kingdom named Ahab. Now, I'm sure that if you went to Sunday school, you're familiar with Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, if you've you know, spoken English for any amount of time, you're familiar at least with his wife's name, Jezebel, as synonymous with horrible woman. Um, Ahab, a uh, horrible man. <laughs> There's just no two ways about it. Uh, he was king in the northern kingdom, and he took a wife from Sidon, who was an idol worshiper extraordinaire named Jezebel. And she brought all manner of idols and idol worship into the northern kingdom. And, uh, I mean, you remember everything. This, the whole story of Ahab and Jezebel and everything that was going on with them. Our focus is on the issue of Elijah. Elijah was the prophet of God sent to Ahab in the northern kingdom. Um, remember up there, there was there, God, the Lord withheld rain for three years uh, as part of the punishment of there because Elijah prayed for it. Um, and then uh, that's kind of where we pick up this story in chapter 18, right? Um, all during all the drought and the, uh, the, the lack of rain there, uh, the widow of Zarephath, the, um, the raising of the widow's son, the multiplying of, of, um, of flour and oil until their house is um, uh, through. Basically, for all of their generations, they get free bread. Uh, all sorts of instances showing things about real salvation, uh, all sorts of stuff that would be awesome. Uh, the raising of her son from death, this doesn't happen. This is very, very unusual stuff. Uh, happens at the end of chapter 17. Um, oh, let's read that because it's one of the raisings from the dead in the Old Testament that's just kind of mind-blowing. Um, verse 17 in chapter 17, 1 Kings. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. 
Um, and, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourner by, by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is, is uh, in your mouth is truth. What stands out to you in this little setup for our discussion here? Oh, yeah. And she sees it in ways that nobody ever got to see that. What I mean, what have, what have we said about the spirit of the Lord from the very beginning? What is his main role? He's the life bringer. He's the one who brings life. Things that the flesh can't do, the spirit does. There is nothing about Elijah that's able to make this happen. This was just the prophet of the Lord praying. And God working through his prophet to depict something, not just for this widow, but something much grander many, many years into the future. I'll leave you to wonder what that might be about a sun rising from the dead. But let's go to verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, and continue reading the story. Yes, ma'am. Is, is this the only time that when a prophet where was somebody from the dead? No. No. After Elijah comes Elisha, who bore a double version of the Spirit. And when uh, watch this. When Elisha was buried, he was accidentally buried on top of someone else's grave, and they wrote from the dead. I mean, things like this. This is what I say is we've just entered a new phase of the Spirit of the Lord interacting in Israel. And he's going to use the prophets to live out his salvation. Some of them explicitly, like Hosea, right? Go out and find a prostitute and make her your wife so that Israel will learn what my relationship with them is like. Because I have Israel and they keep whoring after other gods. I mean, Hosea's entire life, his marriage and everything was just a picture of Israel, Right, you have um, um, oh my goodness, my brain just exploded. Hang on a second. Um, you have other prophets like Ezekiel, who they have to eat bread that's cooked over poop, right, and and things like this to depict all manner of what the message of the Lord to the people of Israel was about what what horrible taste is in his mouth because of them, like. There's so many issues about this. The prophets' lives depict what God is going to be doing and is doing in his people. And so you'll see all sorts of pictures that don't make any sense until Jesus comes. And as soon as he comes, all of a sudden the prophets go like this and make all the sense in the world. Everything that had been working and everything that they had been trying to figure out, and they're sitting there looking to the prophets, why is it that this prophet, you know, why is it when his bones were laid upon someone else's bones, those bones came to life? Like, what? A death that brings life. I mean, there's, 
There's so many things that don't make any sense until we see Jesus. Uh, And reading the prophets with Christian eyes is a remarkable thing. But at the time, we have pictures like this that show up, and some of them get really extreme, and some of them, um, you know, especially with death. So you, you talked about resurrections. Those are the two main ones. There's ones that prevented death, for instance, with Daniel's three friends. Remember when they go into the fiery furnace? Things that would kill anybody, they didn't even smell like smoke. Right, and it's not just about the Lord just protects those. It's that whole story is a story about being faithful to the Lord in the face of anything, even death. And what, where do we see that most directly expressed to us? But Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but Your will be done. Right, and and it's this 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 fealty to the Father, no matter what the outcome is, even though He knew the outcome, and that He wouldn't be saved from nails that can't penetrate His hands, but they truly would go through. Um, terrifying thing to sit in in knowledge of um yeah there's there's very few instances of real full-on resurrections in the old testament this is one of them um i think the most the most incredible one is elisha's though being buried on top of somebody else's grave by accident um spirit of the lord's like ooh, this is a great time for a really cool picture of what's going to happen uh not that that's how the spirit of the lord works but that's just how my mind works Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's let's stay here in First Kings eighteen. I don't know if I'm going to finish today anyway, so no worries. Um, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, "Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth." And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now, okay, so what have we been dealing with? What happens when there's no water? The food doesn't grow. Yeah, yeah. Everyone dies. Animals die. Everything dies. So without the blessing of rain, what happens to the earth that God created? It goes back to formless, void, and no life. This, this This is one of those testaments that the prophet is living out experientially what happens when the Spirit of the Lord is pulled from something. So the same thing that was happened to Saul's life and to his lineage is now physically happening to the ground. They're not getting rain. And now the Lord says, okay, it's been three years. Famine is enough. Thousands of people have died. Ahab called Obadiah. Yep, same Obadiah, the one who wrote the book. This is where he shows up in the story. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. This is just a little instance of what he was doing in the midst of the story, um, preserving the lives of the faithful of God um, with bread and with water. Verse 5. It sounds like the king knew what he was doing against his wife because she was trying to kill the prophet. Yes, so there are instances of that where the king knew, and he was just like, yeah, my wife's a little bit nuts. Um, But most of the time Ahab just kind of went along with her no matter. Um, Verse 5, Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land, to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Basically, he wants to control all the water, right? Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. And so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Now, so we have two prophets, um, one, one of the written prophets, Obadiah, and one, one of the speaking prophets, Elijah. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? 
And he said, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, have I, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I have come to tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him this day. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Um... And all of this kind of stuff. And then they go to Mount Carmel, which you know that story, I imagine. It's one of the most fantastic um, stories on the top of the Mount of Carmel, where there's 450 prophets of Baal who cut themselves and dance and challenge all day for Baal to rain down fire from heaven to to pull up the, the sacrifice. And Elijah has water, very, very, very valuable water, just poured all over uh, his altar and the stones and prays once and the Lord reaches down from heaven with fire and not only consumes the sacrifice, but the water and the stones and everything. Remarkable story. And then the prophets of Baal are put to death. I respect the fear of Obadiah here. Um, he is well aware that the spirit of the Lord does things that the prophets don't expect. This is what he is afraid of. And I think this is a really good lesson to us. He knows what's going to happen if he goes to Ahab and says, Elijah's over here, let's go over there. And he's just like, look, the spirit of the Lord can just pick you up and put you wherever. I serve the same Lord. I know what he can do. And if I come here and you're not here, Ahab's just going to cut my head off. And he says, look, you got you to gotta give me some level of clarity here. Am I going to my death or am I not? You know, basically, Obadiah's like, if I'm going to my death, just let me know. I mean, honestly, don't, don't, please don't make it a surprise that, you know, I'm going to come back here. You're not here. And so the promise of Elijah says, no, no, no. As the Lord lives, I'm going to see, I'm going to see him this day. I love this because the writer of the book of Kings is expressing to us this reality that the prophets are not controlling the spirit of the Lord. Spirit of the Lord, they are well aware, does whatever he wants to do. And they are simply his mouthpieces and sometimes his chest pieces. Like literally, we're going to see this with Ezekiel. The spirit of the Lord just grabs him by his hair and picks him up off the earth and drags him to another place and sets him down there. Right. And so Obadiah here is saying the same thing to Elijah. He's like, the spirit of the Lord is very unpredictable. He may indeed intend to put me to death today. Okay, I suppose that's okay, but is that what I'm here for? And Elijah assures him it's not. And so they go back to tell Ahab, and it turns out to be one of the more uh, impressive expressions of, of worship and salvation that really occurs in, uh, in Israel's history, and that is the occurrence at the top of Mount Carmel. Um, a wonderful story to read to bedtime tonight, if you would like. Um, this, this whole story uh, happens in 1 Kings 18 for the rest of the chapter. And after that day on Mount Carmel, not only did fire come down from the Lord, but so did rain. 
rain everywhere. Back to bringing life from the ground again. Here, the Spirit of the Lord is involved with stories that that are expressly stated here now on the mouth of the lips of the prophet saying, I don't know what he's doing. We're not causing this. We're not deciding what the word of the Lord is. And I love that the prophets are recognizing this. Um, We are not the originators of the word of the Lord, right? In every false religion, the prophets are the originators of the word of the Lord. With those who are following the God of Israel, the spirit of God is the originator of the words of the Lord. And so what does the prophet say? This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. What does the false prophet say? This is what the Lord says, but the Lord hasn't said that. That's the sign of a false prophet. It doesn't come to pass. It turns out to be false. These things are to be avoided. These things are to be warned against. These things are to be taught against, right? Let's go back to the southern kingdom during Ahab's reign. And that's going to be in 2 Chronicles 18. As Ahab is reigning in the northern kingdom, Asa dies, King Asa dies, and his son, a man named Jehoshaphat, takes over in the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat was pretty good. He did a lot of good stuff. He did some dumb stuff. Um, he was just kind of like, I would, I would sum up his reign as kind of being accidentally good. How's that? Uh, but he also makes allegiances and alliances with Ahab, which means you're going to do dumb. Because anything that you do with Ahab is just going to lead to disarray and discord. Um, in Second Chronicles 18, we have Jehoshaphat uh, coming and making marriage alliances with Ahab. That's not going to end well. Um, uh, so let's, let's see how this kind of pans out. Because this is one of the most fascinating stories, I think, in the Old Testament. And I'm not underestimating it. We get a piece of heaven pulled back for a second to see what the Lord's doing behind the scenes. We never get to see that, except for like in Job chapter 1 and here. Uh, And then before the Tower of Babel for a few minutes. Like, there's very few instances where we see this, but 2 Chronicles 18 is one of them. So I I at least want to cover this today before we end. Now, Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 18, verse 1, had great riches and honor. This is King Asa's son ruling the southern kingdom while King Ahab is in the north. He had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him, and induced him to go up to Ramoth-Gilead. They want to go to battle together. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And he answered, I am as you are, my people as your people, we will be with you in the war. That's great, everyone's just getting along. Verse 4, and Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. I want to know what the Lord says about this, right? This is where Jehoshaphat is going. Before we discuss whether we go up to Ramoth Gilead, I want you to to determine, is this going to be what the Lord has for us, right? So the king of Israel, that's Ahab, gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, shall we go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And all of them said, go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. Jehoshaphat's looking at all these prophets, the 400 prophets that Ahab brought up, and he's just like, I don't know about that. That doesn't, that doesn't, something about that's got some red flags all over it. So verse 6, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not another prophet of the Lord to whom we might inquire? 
Uh, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, yeah, there's one that we may inquire from the Lord. His name is Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, only evil things. And Jehoshaphat said, yeah, let not the king say so. So the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, fine, bring Micaiah. So I'm paraphrasing as we go through this. Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before him. So get this picture, 400 prophets that are there prophesying of everything that's going on and all of these things, and then they're, all, they're sitting on their two thrones there, and they're waiting for Micaiah. And Zedekiah, the son of Chinaana, uh, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Yea, go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now the story starts. Verse 12. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets are of one accord, and they are favorable to the king, meaning Ahab. Let your words be like the words of one of them and speak favorably to the king. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And Micaiah answered him, watch this. Yeah, go up and triumph. They'll be given into your hand. Ahab answered back to him, he says, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw, and so Micaiah answers him, and he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. So this is, this is where Micaiah says, he actually describes how the word of the Lord came to him. We never get to see this side of this. The Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Fine. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said to all the hosts of heaven, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and die at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said to another, and then a spirit, lowercase s, came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, well, by what means will you entice Ahab? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, okay, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, this is where Micaiah is saying again, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these, your prophets who are dancing in front of you. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. He means for you to die. Zedekiah, who was in charge of the 400 prophets, uh, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, which way did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel says, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and, jo and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him a meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, then the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. That is a remarkable story. Does anything stand out to you as unusual or fascinating?
How about the use of a lying spirit from the Lord in heaven to go and deceive his prophets, the king's prophets, so that he entices him to go up so that he gets put to death? Sound a little bit unusual? Very unusual, which means these prophets were literally receiving messages that they were to be passing on to the king. And they were all in one accord. And it was the message that God had sent for them to do so. Why? To deceive them, to send them up to be killed in judgment. This is part of how the Lord works that does not usually get spoken about in church very often. And that is his judgment. And what things he does when he judges people. He had determined calamity for Ahab. And we look at this and go, well, how could Ahab have avoided this? This seems crazy. It seems set up like the Lord is ambushing him. Yes. How could he have avoided it? Many, many years beforehand. Many, many years beforehand. At this point, there's nothing Ahab can do. He can't go forward without an express uh, conference with the prophets of the Lord. And the prophets of the Lord, the Lord is sending, is lying to him. How does that sit with your theology? (laughs) It's a little hard to swallow, isn't it? Zedekiah is understandably frustrated with Micaiah because Zedekiah had had the Spirit of the Lord. He says, wait, where did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to you? Why didn't God tell me that? He told me to tell Ahab everything's favorable, so he goes and falls into an ambush? How am I supposed to know? And here's one of the great things about this time period, is that the Spirit of the Lord does not run by his prophets whether or not what he's doing is well with them. It doesn't matter if the prophet approves of how the Spirit of the Lord is doing things. Again, the word, of the, Lord, the word of the Lord is not originating with the prophets. God is sending not only his Spirit, capital S, third member of the Trinity, but also other spirits, lowercase s. We don't get this kind of stuff sent to us very often. We don't get heaven kind of peeled back and see what's happening behind the scenes. And yet here we have that very thing. Now, I don't have to, I think, tell you, that Ahab goes up to battle and dies because that's what the Lord had intended for him. I'm going to put you to death and I'm going to lie to you to get you to go. Kind of a remarkable thing. Judgment had already been pronounced. He was going to entice him to go forward. And so the Lord chooses a lying spirit to go in the mouth of all his prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning Ahab. Hear the spirit of the Lord again. When the Spirit of the Lord is pulled, what happens but death? The Spirit of the Lord brings life, and his absence brings death. Because death is the natural state now in a sinful world, right? It's kind of like when we're born into this world. Are we born rich or are we born poor? We're born poor. We have to build up. As we're born into this world, are we heading towards life eternal or are we heading towards death? Without the Spirit of the Lord, there is death. The flesh is of no help at all. I can't avoid it. doesn't matter how many doctor's visits you go to. None of us are living another hundred years, right? It doesn't matter how much the flesh tries. It doesn't matter how many people bind together. It doesn't matter how good our medicine gets. We're all going to die. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all, the scriptures say. And here we see that the spirit of the Lord leaves those prophets, comes to Micaiah, And a lying spirit is put in his stead so that they would be deceived so that they would all go to battle and die. Which happens in the very next paragraph. Spirit of the Lord brings life. His absence brings death. We saw the same thing happen before the flood. My spirit will not always live with man. 
I'll give him another 120 years and I'm going to pull the spirit from the world. And he pulls the Holy Spirit from the world. And what happens? The flood comes and destroys everyone. Right? All of these things challenge the way that we naturally look at the scriptures. We would assume that if we were in those situations, we would have done better. But the reality is, without the Spirit of the Lord bringing us to life, not one of us would do better than those who lived before us. This was what the Pharisees had thoroughly wrong. And Jesus called them out on it every single time. Pharisees says, look, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have persecuted the prophets. And Jesus says, well, not only are you testifying against yourself that you are the sons of your fathers, but here stands the Lord of the prophets, and you're trying to kill him. And so what does Jesus do? He entices them. He says, fill up what is lacking in your father's disobediences. Basically, you're going to do to me what your fathers did to the prophets, and you're going to think you're right, just like your fathers thought they were right. The Spirit brings life. Your flesh is of no help at all. And Jesus even says to the Pharisees, I wasn't here to save you guys at all. I'm here to save those who are sick, who see themselves in need of a savior. What, what need of a physician for those who are well, who find themselves with no need of sickness or checkups or anything? You're just fine. Everything's good. Why do you need a physician? I'm the physician that heals the sick. You don't even know you're sick. The spirit of the Lord, where he goes, brings the word of the Lord. And what does the word of the Lord do? It brings life from non-life. Just as when he came and created the world. He speaks into the world and from nothing creates all life and everything. That's the spirit of the Lord bringing the word of the Lord to bear. Um, oh man, we're 15 minutes over now. Um, nah, we're going to have to go to second Chronicles 20 next week. Um, so keep a bookmark there or whatever. And we'll be back here next time because Jehoshaphat's prayer uh, in, in second Chronicles 20 is just fantastic. And uh, it involves yet another one of the speaking prophets interacting with him. So we'll be back there. Um, Yeah, let's pray here at the end. Uh, Our Father, we are very grateful that your spirit brings life. We are thankful that it does not depend on our strength or on our might, but it depends on your spirit to bring about your salvation of your people. Uh, We pray, Father, that whatever schemes we have to accomplish your ways be removed from our minds. And instead, we just delight in your word and in your way and watch you work. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your prophets. We thank you for your apostles. Most of all, we thank you for Christ, the center and crux of all of history. Uh, We pray that he fill up our vision and our minds and our imaginations. We thank you for him in all your son's name. Amen.